As Pastor Lovett said, our text this morning comes from Paul's epistle to the Colossians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Our merciful and mighty, righteous and just Father in heaven, we are humbled and thankful as we come to your perfect and holy word. You have revealed to us, your people, the very words of life. You have shown us our utter dependence upon you, and given to us truth from heaven, for thy word is truth. We thank you for Christ our Savior, the very image of the invisible God through whom and for whom all things both in heaven and on earth were created, and in whom dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We confess that our minds are weak, we are prone to distraction and shallow thought. We love too much the worldly entertainments, human philosophies, and selfish indulgence. We do not often exercise our minds in difficult matters and quickly grow weary when we do. Send your Holy Spirit, we pray, to illumine the truth of your word, to bring conviction where we fall short, and to bolster us with the encouragement to persevere in faith. For it is in Christ, we pray, who is working in us to do that which is pleasing in your sight. And it is in his strong name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Before we even get started this morning, I have a particular joy to share. It was some 12 or 13 years ago, I believe, on our first visit to Heritage Church that the Lingos opened their home and welcomed us there. And in family worship, we sang Psalm 98. God is good. I love that psalm, and it will always hold a place in my heart. The title of the message this morning is our thoughts of God. This is an area where the church through the ages has often stumbled. Individuals have stumbled and even fallen away. And so it is with a certain sense of weight that we come to the text before us. But it is also an area where great saints through the ages have been encouraged and strengthened. And the church has had her great beacon so that she could pursue and do the mission of the church effectively. In this short epistle to the Colossians, Paul, imprisoned in Rome and bound with chains, writes with a great sense of love and concern for a people, many of whom he has not seen face to face. He does this to shore them up, teaching them who they are in Christ and what they therefore are to do. In classic Pauline style, he opens with a benedictory greeting and thanksgiving to the Lord, followed by one glorious doctrine 
after another, primarily in the form of indicatives, describing who the believer is in Christ, and in so doing, he addresses false teachings that have come into the church, having laid the doctrinal foundations in the first part of the letter, he follows with specific applications. He teaches us in doctrine and practice, indicative and imperative. And right at this transition from doctrine to application, we find our text. Let's turn there again. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. If A is true, then do B, because C is true, and ultimately D. We see the logic here. If you are a Christian, then seek and set your affections, your mind, on heavenly things. Why? Because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. And Christ is at the right hand of God. This being the case, we have even now the hope of glory. Being positionally in Christ, we are to now seek and set our affections, our minds, our thoughts, if you will, in a completely new place. The text before us, may not be particularly complex, but it is profoundly weighty in the imperatives it bears upon and to which we will now focus our attention. Paul is arguing that if we are in Christ, that is, if we are Christians, those who have been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through faith, made alive together with him, having all our sins forgiven by him, And since Christ is risen and reigning and seated at the right hand of God, the Father in heaven, we should then quite logically seek those things which are above, that is, those things which are heavenly, and set our affections, our minds, as it is most often translated, on things above. We are to fill our thoughts with heavenly thoughts. At the same time, we are to not set our affections, our minds, upon earthly things. We are to not fill our thoughts with carnal thoughts. And we should do this because we are dead to the things of this world. That is, those base and profane and carnal things, those ways in which we formerly walked. Our life is now hidden with Christ in God. This, brothers and sisters, is good news. We who are in Christ have a heavenly citizenship and are made members of the household of God. We look to Ephesians 2.19. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. There is such a newness to who we are. We are right now raised up and made to sit together in heavenly places. In Christ Jesus. A change has taken place such that our minds and affections are no longer earthly, as it were, but heavenly. 
our heart's desires, our preferences are new and directed toward heaven. We are no longer in bondage to our carnal desires. In our minds, where once there was only darkness, gospel light now shines, and we are to cast down vain imaginations and anything, anything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And chief among these thoughts are our thoughts of God himself. In A.W. Tozer's classic devotional work, he opens the first chapter with the following words. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not, is not what at any given time he may say or do, but what he, in his deep heart, conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Most of us have probably heard at one time or another the expression, don't be so heavenly minded that you are of no earthly use. It's kind of clever. It's easy to remember. And it seems like there could be a nugget of wisdom in there, but there's a problem. The problem is it's not biblical. As new creations in Christ, we have new thoughts. Our minds are to be directed and informed by the thoughts of God. So contrary to that old familiar expression, we are to be completely heavenly minded so that we might be of great earthly use. But how do we do this? How, while still on this earth, in these mortal bodies possessing finite minds, do we contemplate and set our affections, our minds, upon heavenly things and bring every thought captive to the eternal, infinite God who created us. Looking at Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, the Lord articulates the fundamental problem here. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's ways... God's thoughts are so different and so much higher than our ways and thoughts that the challenge in being heavenly minded and thinking rightly about God is overwhelming. Nevertheless, we must, of course, turn to his word and with great humility remember that we are searching out the infinite while we remain finite, all the while knowing that the finite cannot fully comprehend the infinite. God is, in the ultimate sense, incomprehensible. 
So let us then follow the approach set out before us in our text. Seek and set. First, we will seek those things which are above by searching the scriptures to glean some important truths about who God is, how he describes himself. Then we will look to his word to determine how we might set our minds upon our heavenly creator. It would be most helpful to start this task by entering into an appropriate posture of humility before God's word. One way we may do this is is reviewing what David wrote in the opening and closing of Psalm 139. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassed my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. As we begin seeking, let's honestly acknowledge our primary obstacle. Even as a redeemed people, we entertain and make room in our minds thoughts of God that are too low, too human. And we do this with minds polluted with unholy thoughts. In Psalm 50, 21, God reminds us, These things thou hast done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. But I will reprove thee and set them in order before thine eyes. We have been created in the image of God, yet in our fallen state, in our sin, we do the most abhorrent thing imaginable, we create a false God after our own image. In the blindness and corruption of our natures, we deform and reshape God, for we must acknowledge him and that he is. And we deny him of his sovereign power, his divine justice, granting only such authority and interest that is most pleasing and best suited to our personal interest. We make him a God who is quite accommodating to our two main values, which Francis Schaeffer identifies as personal peace and affluence. We have within us this very natural desire to conceive of God as being very much like ourselves, only a bit nicer. We want God to be there when we need him, not be there when he is inconvenient or when his presence might induce guilt. The God of our imagination expects very little of us and changes frequently, adapting to our ever-changing moods and convictions. This God is not concerned with absolute truth, objective beauty, ultimate goodness. But he might be quite concerned about our happiness and self-esteem. Is this true? How do we know this might be true? We see a version of this God of our own making in a study that was conducted a number of years ago 
in the uh, religious and spiritual lives of American teenagers, which after conducting interviews with over 3,000 students, they identified what they termed moralistic therapeutic deism to describe the faith that many of these teenagers held to. In summarizing this deity, the study finds that these teens echo the faith of their parents. Understanding that God is something like a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. He is always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, and does not become too personally involved in the process. This grieves me, and I think it grieves you too. Um, this is part of the challenge the evangelistic challenge we have as we go out into the world. This is the mindset that is ingrained largely in our culture today. And it would be all too easy to think about this study and think, it's not talking about us. Let us beware, lest we become too comfortable and complacent and think that we are not subject to this type of error, for we are and we always have been since the fall. To complicate matters further, we make the task of thinking of God rightly difficult, if not impossible. We start with minds that are filled with all variety of competing, carnal, self-centered, and altogether unholy thoughts, images, and priorities. We can always count on Spurgeon to help us out here and to put it in a memorable way. He says, oh, how foolish are we if we attempt to entertain two guests so hostile to one another as Christ Jesus and the devil. Rest assured, Christ will not live in the parlor of our hearts if we entertain the devil in the cellar of our thoughts. God's holiness is such that it is utterly incompatible with sinful, unholy thoughts. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither can it be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8, 5 and 8. Five through eight. What a struggle. What a battle this is for us. Some of us are given to anger, others to envy. We are quick to judge our neighbor. Perhaps we spend time consuming entertainment laced with blasphemy, filthy language. We are easily tempted into laziness, lust, and gossip, gluttony. Pride is an ever-present enemy. We must, therefore, seek to remedy our low thoughts of God and be about the business cultivating ever higher thoughts of God. The mind must be trained and directed toward true heavenly thoughts, thoughts which are informed by God as he describes himself we might start by asking as Moses and the children of Israel did in the Song of Moses, Who is like unto thee, O God, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, 
doing wonders. We can look to the words that God spoke to Moses as he passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. Exodus 34. This description God gives of himself is so core to his identity. We see variations of this in Numbers 14, Nehemiah 9, Psalm 86, Psalm 103, Psalm 145, Jonah 4, and Joel 2. Knowing this, we should pay attention and catechize our minds with these heavenly truths. We should speak the truths of God directly to our souls and so cleanse and push aside those lowly thoughts, those self-centered and not God-centered thoughts that we are made new. Our minds are renewed. Looking to Psalm 42, we hear the psalmist cry out, My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my meat day and night, while they continually say unto me, Where is thy God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me. For I had gone with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept holy day. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted in me? In reflecting upon Psalm 42, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you in the morning when you wake up. You have not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment here in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asked. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. So let's take the doctor's advice and speak Psalm 103 to ourselves. And many of us can now do this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagle's. Having committed to speaking the truth about Lord to our souls and not listening to the unbridled, uninformed, self-centered thoughts that come rushing in, let us proceed then with catechizing our minds, 
with right thoughts of God as we engage his word daily. Who is the Lord? He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is the one who executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Who is the Lord? The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works, near to all who call upon him and to all who call upon him in truth. He preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Who is God? The Lord our God is one Lord. The Lord your God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. The Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. Who is this God? God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? The Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your forefathers, which he confirmed to them by oath. God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He is not the author of confusion, but of peace. What is God? God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. What can he do? God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Catechize your minds. Catechize your minds about God with his word. We also are not limited. We have additional helps. We have established tools that the church has acknowledged, and it is good and right to consider the catechisms of the church. In the shorter catechism, we find the associated proof text, which helps us drive further into his word. Question four. Feel free to join in if you want to. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Are there more gods than one? There is but one only, the living and true God. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Dear friends, we must be about the business of informing and reforming our knowledge of God as he truly is. But there is a need to take this even further. Knowing what God, knowing what God reveals about himself in his word is necessary. It's good. It's excellent. But the knowledge we gain about God must become knowledge of God. J.I. Packer comments on this and this particular need in his book, Knowing God. He writes, we need to frankly face ourselves at this point. 
We are perhaps orthodox evangelicals. We can state the gospel clearly and can spell unsound doctrine a mile away. If anyone asks how men may know God, we can at once produce the right formula that we come to know God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yet the gaiety, goodness, and unfetteredness of spirit, which are marks of those who have known God, are rare among us. Rarer, perhaps, than they are to some other Christian circles, where, by comparison, evangelical truth is less clearly and fully known. Here, too, it would seem that the last may prove to be first and the first last. A little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about him. Our thoughts of God, informed by his divine revelation in Scripture, is but a beginning. As we fill our minds with the knowledge of who he is, as we set our minds upon the heavenly, as we exercise this knowledge by faith in worship and in prayer, this knowledge about God is translated from our heads to our hearts and becomes knowledge of God. And this is a spiritual discipline. This is the task to which we are to engage our minds and our spirits. And with our hearts thus engaged, we can truly embrace Paul's exhortation in Philippians 4.4 to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. All our joy finds its true, good, and pure end in God himself. And as David penned in Psalm 70, verse 4, let all those... Let's seek thee, rejoice, and be glad in thee. Let such as love thy salvation say continually, let God be magnified. Let God be magnified indeed. Our delight is in the Lord. So what? So what are the benefits of seeking and setting our minds on the things above, of reforming our low thoughts of God to even higher biblical thoughts? of taking the knowledge about the Lord and by faith and through the means of grace coming to a richer and deeper knowledge of the Lord. We know we are to be about this work if we belong to Christ. We know that this is right because our life is hid with Christ and God and that we have the hope of glory that awaits us. But are there practical benefits? What is the advantage? What is the profit in this discipline of setting our minds on things above, as Paul might say, much in every way. So a couple of examples might help as we consider this so what question. Let's consider first the great Puritan Richard Baxter. In 1638, Baxter entered into the ministry as a deacon, and in the years that followed, he would go on to hold the offices of curate, lecturer, or paid preacher, army chaplain, and vicar. Baxter's most sustained role was at Kidderminster, where he labored for nearly 20 years. His work was so effective that nearly the whole town was converted. The ministry philosophy behind his work here in Kidderminster there became the basic basis of his classic book, The Reformed Pastor. Perhaps the most unique feature of Baxter's ministry is the sheer volume and scope of his writings. 
Packer again notes that he was the most voluminous English theologian of all time, writing, in addition to the approximately four million words of pastoral, apologetic, devotional, and homiletic writing that are printed in his practical works, he produced about six million more on the aspects of the doctrine of grace and salvation, church unity and nonconformity, the sacraments, Roman Catholicism, antinomianism, millenarianism, Quakerism, politics and history, not to mention a systematic theology in Latin. But there's a story behind all of his accomplishments that sheds light on the so what. Looking into his autobiography and with some help from Donald Whitney, who wrote his dissertation on Richard Baxter's paradigm for pastoral spiritual formation, we learn that Baxter struggled. He struggled with various kinds of sicknesses throughout his life. And from the point of puberty onward, he believed himself to be on the verge of death. Smallpox at age 14, chronic colds and nosebleeds, chronic intestinal illness and pain and persistent bleeding, hemorrhages in his eyes and gums are just the beginning of what he dealt with. An eye disease, which almost cost him the sight in one eye, recurring kidney stones, a mass in his throat, all of these he not only struggled with, but was formed by, as he wrote, for being in expectation of death by a violent, violent cough with spitting of blood of two years' continuance, supposed to be of consumption, I was yet more awakened to be serious and solicitous about my soul's everlasting state. And since then, I found that this method of God's very wise, and no other was so like to have tended to my good. Though Baxter struggled with his health, he understood how God worked in him through it, writing, I humbly bless his gracious providence who gave me his treasure and earthly and an earthen vessel and trained me up in the school of affliction and taught me the cross of Christ so soon that I might rather be a theologian of the cross, as Luther wrote, than a theologian of glory and a cross-bearer than a cross-maker or impostor. During the winter of 1646, ill health forced him to spend several lonely months in a house far from his home and family. His condition was so grave that he was sentenced to death by the physicians. With his life ebbing away, Baxter began thinking much about heaven. As he put it, I began to contemplate more seriously the everlasting rest which I apprehended myself to be just on the borders of. As he was able, and so that his thoughts might not be too much scattered in his meditation, he wrote down his reflections that he might review and be comforted by them. These were the beginnings of perhaps the most important of his 140 books, The Saints' Everlasting Rest. Published four years later, he found his extended times of meditation on heaven so helpful that after his recovery, he continued them for the remaining five decades of his life. For half an hour each day, usually while walking before dinner, Baxter disciplined his mind to focus 
on the world to come to consider his heavenly Father. Striving in these thoughts, his goal was to accomplish with excellence and diligence all the work God has given us to do, and so let's do likewise, and better understand and receive our Creator's providences with thanksgiving. And let us not forget the Apostle Paul. Now here is a man filled with the Holy Spirit, set apart for a great work of God by the Lord Jesus himself. Writing his epistle to the Philippians, we encounter Paul's heavenly-minded response to being in chains and imprisoned. But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident in my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, but not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. You can almost sense Paul would say, put me under house arrest, chain me to a palace guard. Great! What an opportunity for the gospel. Such was the success of Paul's ministry that he closes the same epistle with these words. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. Caesar's household. Or consider how Paul responds to the litany of physical trials he recalls in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten. With rods, once I was stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness, painfulness, in watchings often in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And what does Paul make of being treated this way? How does he respond? Well, he tells us in chapter 12, Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. The man who knows the Lord of heaven rightly, who meditates on his law daily, is like a tree planted by rivers of water. He is even able to take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, and distresses, all for the sake of Christ, his Savior. We, 
brothers and sisters, need to condition our minds to respond with godliness, to respond with godliness in the face of adversity, to respond with godliness in the face of celebration. And we need to do this rather than plunging into self-pity or cursing or rage or impatience or that whole list of things that we could all think of. Beloved of the Lord, the exhortation is before us. Seek and set your minds on things above. Consider how you are thinking about God and daily catechize your thinking with his revealed truth. Exercise this knowledge about God in prayer and worship, and so come to know of him vitally, such that you are able with thanksgiving to face the trials of this life with rejoicing, and you are emboldened to share the gospel with confidence for the hope of the glory that awaits. What a wonderful God we serve, a God who has revealed himself to us that we might know that we might know him as he truly is. Let's pray. Our merciful and glorious Father in heaven, how thankful we are for the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. It is a weighty and sobering task we face to consider you in all your holiness and majesty to ponder the frightening power that spoke by the unlimited might of your word, everything that is into existence, out of nothing. Grant us, we pray, the grace of Christ to so richly dwell in us and the Holy Spirit to so effectively work through us that as we seek those things which are above and set our affections and minds upon your glory, that you would fit us for service in your kingdom, both in this life and in the glory to come. Help us to daily put off the old man and the deeds and thoughts of the flesh and to put on daily that which is heavenly and in accordance with the new man, being no longer conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds with ever more true and majestic, ever higher thoughts of you our Creator. And this we pray in the victorious name of Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Amen.